summarize the Ten Commandments when he said that you know, the first piece of the commands can be understood as loving the Lord, if you wanted to summarize it, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second command would be to love others, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God, loving people, that's the Ten Commands in a very condensed form. We're looking at the second command, and we're going to spend some time with it. You know, when we, uh, when we were in service, uh, these last two services earlier this morning, I shared with them how the, the team, as we gathered together to pray before all the services took place, we were actually praying for everybody who can't, was going to come through the doors. And uh, we were praying that everyone would just be uh, touched by the reality of God. And uh, we, put, they, we prayed blessing and life. And one of the realizations we have is that, you know, some of us are walking through very challenging times. I know not everybody is. I mean, some of us, maybe we're in a very good season and um, life is going very well for us. And that's wonderful. And it's easy to be thankful in those times. But for a lot of us, you know, um, we have certain things that we're facing. I know that just from talking to a few different ones, there's a lot of us who are also have experienced um, setbacks in life. And one of the phrases as I was praying this morning just kind of came to me uh, was that, you know, when God's involved in something, um, setbacks are really just setups for a new opportunity. And for some of us, we may be experiencing something that looks pretty bleak or maybe we're discouraged about it. But if we can fix our gaze upon the Lord, I'm convinced that a lot of us will be positioning ourselves for something that looks far more like a breakthrough moment for us. You know, when it comes to following Jesus, um, I also have often shared that this is not a sprint. It's, it's not how fast we get out of the blocks. Jesus talked a lot about it. It's really, it really is uh, a marathon. Jesus said, he who endures, the one who endures into the end, they shall be saved. This idea of running for the long haul, of of learning how to follow Jesus through the ups and downs of life, learning how to have a faith that is, is strong, that is capable of sustaining itself when even things are going against us, when we feel that our winds are adverse, or we're disappointed we either with others or with maybe things within our own heart, then maybe sometimes even we're disappointed with God. And in those places, the Lord wants to teach us how to have deep roots, how to have a faith and a life with God that is capable of sustaining itself throughout the duration of our life. So, you know, if you, if you get, think about it, the, the commands themselves were actually given to Israel to sustain them as a people. They, they weren't given just to catch them doing something wrong. They were actually given to help them grow deep roots as a people. I mean, in reality is that they came out of Egypt when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and were given these commands. They had no real context of understanding themselves as a people, as a nation. They had come out of an enslaved situation in, in Egypt. Uh, they had never actually had government. Uh, they, they were somewhat, in some ways, um, just for the first time, given a lot of freedom. And when the Lord gives them these words, this law and the words, the Ten Commandments are at the center of it, it wasn't given to, to, to just sort of cheat them out of life. You understand this. The commands were given to give them guidance, and these principles were going to help them move forward with an identity of blessing and life. So far from being constricting, they were, they were meant to be life-giving, as I believe they still are. So when we're going to look at this morning, we're going to try to look at it in a way that is not just clinical, but in a way that would contribute, I hope, to a deepening of our life with God. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in here, okay? So Lord, I want to ask you to just uh, be with us. 
I know, hey, Lord, I know we may have many things going on the rest of our day. Perhaps we came in with stuff swirling around in our minds. Maybe a lot of those things are going to be fun and we're going to enjoy the weather. But you know what? We're here right now. We made a decision to honor you. We've, we've, we've carved out space in our lives to say that you're important, a priority to us, Lord. And I pray that as we, as we have this time together, that it would be meaningful. And so much of that meaning is connected to how we approach it, Lord. Teach us to, to come with what you called those listening ears, that we might have a, a responsive intent inside of our hearts as we share this word together. So I ask for your blessing, your grace, for your flow of life to come. In Jesus' name I pray this, Lord. Amen, God. Let it be so. All right, Exodus 20. We're going to look at some of the passages in the handout. Try to move through them rapidly. There's some things I would like to get to towards the back end of this. But um, we start with Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Uh, you must not have any other gods but me, number one. And you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. So these are the words. These are the first two commands. Um, again, you know what's interesting is that the irony of all ironies is that the second command, as it was being given, was being violated. The, the, Moses had gone up into the mountain to meet with God. The, the Israelites were down below. It took much longer than anybody anticipated. They were restless. They tended to do what a lot of us do when we're in a, in a situation that's scary or fearful. They reverted back to what they knew. And what they knew was their experience in Egypt. And in Egypt, they had grown up around idols. They had grown up as, around things that represented God. And so one, we know that, in fact, the, the cover on the handout is an, an attempt an artistic rendition of the incident called the golden calf incident that occurs at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses is in the mountain getting the law that is expressly forbidding the very thing that they were doing at that moment. They were, they were carving out a calf of gold and they melted it down. They made a molten image of, of, of a golden calf and they, they were worshiping it and, and uh, having uh, uh, just this, this uh, amazing time of decadence and uh, free for all. And it was just, it was, it was moral chaos. And uh, the irony again, the contradiction so evident that while that was happening, God was giving his words to Moses to give to his people at the very moment they were violating those words. Now, some of you who were here last week, some of us who were here last week, remember that we, we tried to interface the first commandment with uh, a, a scenario that occurred in the 17th chapter of Acts. I put this piece in the handout as well to sort of complete where we were. We talked about how Moses, I mean, not just Moses, but in this case, the Apostle Paul, how he, when he was moving to this great city called Athens, as many of us were aware, we talked about this again in depth, that he wanted, he had this burden, this desire to bring the message of Jesus to the, this great city. Uh, Athens, when he got there, Paul had arrived ahead, and when he got there, uh, he was stunned. He was overwhelmed. He was not prepared for the pervasive uh, idolatry that he saw everywhere. The, it, it was beyond something. He was a cosmopolitan man. He had been exposed to a lot of the Greco-Roman world. He was not prepared for what he experienced when he got to Athens. It says that if one of the historians said that in Athens there, there were more idols than there were human beings that people had placed them in strategic places, shrines to every conceivable God. 
that when you would walk down the streets, you would be overwhelmed by them. There was a spiritual haze that sat over the city. Paul was devastated um, by the pervasiveness of, of, of the idolatry, and, and he had this overwhelming desire to, to share the message of Jesus and of the one true living God. And, and he began to engage different people in the marketplace, and he began to talk about the Lord, and he began to share about God. And, and we know that what ultimately happens, and again, we talked about this last week, is that he's actually brought to a particular place, Mars Hill, where he's brought before a council of men to share in a more vivid and concise fashion his message because they were interested in hearing his new philosophy. That's kind of where we are when we look at, and oh, one more thing, we were told that they, along with the many gods that they had set up, they had, the Athenians had also had a shrine that was dedicated to the unknown God because they wanted to make sure that they didn't leave any God out. And so they had erected a shrine to the unknown God in case we don't know about one and we've missed it, that one will cover it. And so, you know, Paul is very shrewd in, in a, in a good way, because he says, this is an opportunity for me to create, to create an, it's an opening, to create a way of communicating and this message of Christ. And so look what happens here. And this is sort of, again, connected to what we're talking about in our larger picture of, of the second command. It says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that would be on Mars Hill, in front of the council. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Um, we would say in our vernacular, you know what we would say? We would say, I perceive that you are, in all things, a very spiritually minded people. You are very spiritual. That would be the word we would use. That you have a high regard for spiritual things. I can tell, Paul says. I walked around the city and I was considering all the variety of objects of worship. And he says, and I came across one particular place. In fact, he says there was one shrine that particularly struck me. It was a shrine that was erected to, look what it says here, the unknown God. Then Paul says, I would like to speak to you about the unknown God, the God that has created all things and is unknown to you, who has revealed himself in his son and has given his life so that you might have life and has risen from the dead so that death could not hold us. He begins to talk about Jesus. And there's this amazing exchange that occurs. In fact, look what he says in verse 29. He says, therefore, after Paul, by the way, quotes one of their poets. It's interesting when Paul is trying to connect with them, he doesn't actually start quoting from the scriptures of the Old Testament that they would have had no real appreciation for. Instead, what he does is he actually uses a modern-day poet, and he quotes their own poet talking about how we're all the offspring of God. And he says, just as your own poet, which shows you the breadth and the expansiveness that, uh, that Paul had, that he had enough to pull out a poetry from the Greek culture that he had also been familiar with, and he used it as an avenue to open up an opportunity to talk about the Lord. And he says, as your own poets say, and that brings us to verse 29, he says, therefore, uh, look at this, since we are all the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that can be shaped by art or man's devising. He says, truly, you know, in times past, God has overlooked this kind of ignorance, he says, but now... God has done a new thing and he is calling all people, all human beings to acknowledge and to repent and return and open up their hearts to this amazing thing that he has done. He who is the creator of all things has come to us and has given himself for us. And he starts to tell them about Jesus. And of course, this reaction is uh, something that is worth noting. He is met with a variety of uh, reactions. Not unlike when, when we talk about Jesus, different people will have different opinions Many of them mocked Paul and said, you're crazy. 
what kind of, kind of crazy guy are you? Others, though, it said, were intrigued. And they wanted to talk more about it. And some even, it says, believed. At that moment, they believed. They received. It was an opening of their hearts. One, in fact, we're given two specific names, Dionysius, the Areopagite. And in, in an unusual stroke here, because in a patriarchal society where women were not often mentioned, we see a woman who is mentioned by name here, Demarius. Uh, Demarius is someone who is mentioned specifically as having received uh, the message of Christ in this moment. Now, I say all that because, again, one of the things that's quite evident in this passage is, and one of the things that it, it clearly teaches us, and this will mean more to some of us than others, but it is possible to be very intelligent, very spiritual, and very mixed up. It is possible to have a completely, um, how, uh, boy, how can we say this, confused perspective of God, even though there is an extensive panorama of exposure. One of the things Paul was getting at was there is a spiritual haze that rests over this city. And I am seeking to share with you this amazing thing that God has done. But not only that, I want to talk to you about who God is and his reality. Because if we do not understand who God is, Paul says, we will not be able to appreciate what he has done. I need to talk to you about that. I need to share with you this message of what God is really like. And so that's, that is a centerpiece of this. Now, you'll notice that in the handout, I also put a portion of a psalm in the, in the brown. In the third column, it's, it's, in, it's colored in brown there. Uh, the reason I want us to see this is because, again, when you read the Older Testament, when you read the prophets or the psalms in particular, one of the things that comes out a lot is this discussion about idols. And, you know, we don't live in a culture where idols are worshipped that are carved out by by human hands. We have different kind of idols that are created. And many people have created uh, their own conception of God borrowing here and there, and they've created an image of God, and that image is what is worshipped. But in this case, the Psalms talk a lot about idols because they were around their land, their people. In fact, not only was it part of their experience coming out of Egypt, but the land of Canaan, today Israel, Palestine, as it's called often, um, in that day when Israel was coming in as a young nation, they, they were surrounded by other peoples that had uh, idols everywhere. And so it becomes a theme of Scripture in the Older Testament. Look at this psalm, though, because it teaches us something that is worth noting. It says that, that this is what the psalmist says, but, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands hands. Uh, they, they have mouths, they don't speak. They have eyes, they have yes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. They don't talk. You know what he's saying? But look at this next verse. But those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. Do you understand what this is saying? You, the principle here? The key to this is, as, I can, as far as I can tell, is that if we have a false image of God, at some level, the falseness of that image penetrates us. In other words, and likewise, it's also true. The wholeness of that image penetrates us. In other words, listen, what this verse is saying, if you can see it, we become like that which we worship. What we worship shapes us. That's a huge principle of Scripture. What we worship is what we become like. What we honor, what we place emphasis on, what we give our lives to, 
where our heart is centered upon, what we trust in. These are the things that we were. What we, we become like what we worship. That's what God is saying here. That's why it's so important to have a proper image of God. So let me just put this kind of on the board here under this umbrella of considerations. One of the reasons it's important to have a proper understanding of what God is truly like, or a right image of him, if we will, is because the way we perceive him also, number one, affects how we respond to him. How we perceive God affects how we respond to God. For instance, some of us may think of God like an angry father. Uh, I was talking to someone who, who was sharing with me, you know, they can't help it. They, that's how they kind of see God. That's how they were trained to, to do, you know, sort of in their early years to think of God. As someone, we have to make sure that we don't get him mad at us. God's always waiting to catch us doing something wrong that he, he wants to punish. And, uh, you know, if, if, that's a very unhealthy way of, of understanding God. Uh, it, it is to have, you know, God is not brutal. He is, he is not um, mean-spirited. Uh, God, in fact, if anything, even in the Older Testament, is revealed as having extensive inclination towards mercy. On the other hand, I've talked to people, and I've said, well, how do you think of God? And some, some of us, when we think of God, we think of him, we don't think of him as the angry father. We think of him only as being completely loving, completely kind, completely non-judgmental, completely tolerant of anything and everything. I've heard others say he's like a, you know, he's kind of like the, the, the absent-minded guy in the sky, you know, and you hear someone say, um, you know, the man upstairs, now come on, you know, you got, the man upstairs, you know, as long as he's okay with it, then, you see, but here's the thing, listen to me, and I, I'm not trying to ridicule, I'm trying to make a case of something here. According to Jesus, both the angry God and the tolerant, non-judgmental God, if that's the only way we see God, those are false images of God. Because the Bible, and Jesus in particular, taught us that God is not only loving, listen, he's holy. He's not only loving, he's completely pure of heart. That there, are, there is something that is essential to his character and his, and his identity. That he hates evil. Evil is despised by God. That he, 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 he this, this hurt that we often feel, let's put it this way, God is not only, not only kind and he is not only merciful, but he's also fiercely committed to justice. And, and the reason that shows up is that a lot of times you and I, you know, I don't know how, I might be listening on the news and I'll, I'll hear of something that's done and it will make me so mad. Like how could that person do that? Oh, you know, the innocent blood or when innocent ones are taken advantage of or, or violate in, in ways that make us angry because it's wrong. How could you do... Listen, we are exposed to that in small ways. God sees the entire picture all over the world. And the pain and the, the, the stuff that is being done by human beings to other human beings is so extensively grievous to God. You know, it, 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 I'll tell you something. that the, God's holiness, God's justice is just as real as, as his love and his extensive kindness. In fact, it was so real that he, he gave himself for us to pay a price for us. I mean, it, the, the, God needed to have something pay the price for the brokenness of humanity, the Bible says. But there was no human being that could do it. So God himself became one of us so that we could be brought to him. 
the essence of the cross is of a, of a God who is absolutely holy. And, and there needed to be someone to pay the price for sin, but who would be that nice to pay a price, to pay a debt that wasn't his? Well, we know someone who did. Jesus did that. He paid the price that for us to have life. He paid the penalty that wasn't his. See, God decides to satisfy his justice by giving us his son. God, that's the essence of the verse we many of us know. God so loves this world that what? He gives his only begotten son. Whoever would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn it, to say it's dead, it's already died. He says, but that, this, that we through him might have life. I mean, do you think about this? Now, you know, one of the, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that the best way to understand God, and some people will ask me, well, how do I know what God is really like? I'll say, you want to know the best way to know what God is like? Take a look at Jesus. You want to know what Father God really is like? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus, when he was being asked by Philip, Philip said, one of the disciples said, show us who the Father is, and we will believe. Jesus said, have I been with you so long? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What did he mean? You want to know what Father is like? Look at me. And I thought about it. If you think about that, the face of Jesus conveys the heart of God. Now, in John 1, which is one of the great chapters in all the scripture, the Bible, it opens up like this, and it says, that, and, we, and the Word became flesh. God becomes one of us and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. And it says that we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. But look at the last phrase. What does it say? Full of what? Full of grace and truth. The two sides of God are captured in that. Grace and truth. One of the real examples of what that... See, here's the thing. God shows us who he is. The proper image of God is contained in Jesus. Here, there was a moment when Jesus was teaching. He was teaching a group of people. And in John 8, we read about it. As he's teaching, there's this mob that comes. And the mob, they're, they seem, they're like dragging a woman. They, maybe they got her by the hair, or maybe they've got her by the clothes. But the bottom line is, they, as Jesus is there, they burst through the crowd that's listening, and they throw her on the ground in front of Jesus. And there she is in the dirt, splayed out. And they say to, to Jesus, they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. What do you say we should do with her? Because we know what the law says. The law says she should be stoned. And in that moment, they were waiting for Jesus' response. Jesus, of course, gives us a response that many of us have heard this phrase before. But Jesus turns to them, and it says that he actually gets down and he starts to write in the ground. But he says to them, you who are without sin, you throw the first stone. And then it says, Jesus, begin to write some more in the ground. And nobody knows for sure what he wrote. But one thing we are told, that the accusers left one at a time, from the oldest to the youngest, as Jesus is writing. And many people believe in that moment what Jesus was writing was the sin of each man as they left one at a time from the oldest to the youngest. Until Jesus turns and he says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And I just imagine her looking up and saying, they're, they're all gone. And Jesus says, neither 
do I condemn you? That is absolute grace. But then Jesus said one more thing. He says, go and sin no more. Grace and truth. That is the heart of God. It's not like Jesus said, because think about it. He had the opportunity right then and there to say, you know what? When, she says, when he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. He could have said, neither do I condemn you. Be free. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do, go for it. It's not a big deal. Think about it. I mean, I, you know, think about it. You, but he doesn't do that. He, the amazing dignity that he gives to her. But with the, the, the gracious extension of love that he gives to her. Woman, where are there no one? And I do not condemn you either, but I do say this to you. Make a change now. Go, change, sin no more. This is not, uh, uh, the, Jesus was not advocating a, a moral free-for-all. God has fierce commitments. He's dead serious about it, so, so serious that he gave himself to die for it. The Savior implies a need to be saved from something unto something. If not, there's no need for Jesus. The cross is, means nothing if there isn't something attached to its meaning. Listen, you know, when you look at that situation, you go, wow, God, that is, that is it. That is the essence. You know, some of us, I was thinking about it, we have a different perspective of God. I was talking to someone, and uh, this happens periodically. I'll talk to someone, I'll say, you know, hey, why don't you come to church, you know? I, I'd love for you to come. I, I'm inviting you now. And, and uh, it may even be someone who's come before or someone who has some familiarity in their past but this is what happens. They'll say something like this. You know, I like to come, and, and, I, and, I, and I will. It's just, you know, right now, I got some things in my life, and I really don't feel like I'm, what they're basically saying is, I really don't feel like I'm good enough to come. When I get this stuff taken care of, right, when I get it straightened out, and I'm more qualified, and when I'm a better person, I'll come. And, and I said, but that, that's the whole deal here. I said, you know what? It's not about us being good enough to get accepted. It's about being accepted for who we are and letting God begin to work his goodness through us. It's like, I said, you know what? Listen, we're never, none of us, do you think this is a place of perfect people? People got all their, this is not true. Every one of us, even, even the best of us, and I like to say, and who can truly know? Only God. But all of us are in need of a great Savior. Did not all of us need the grace of God. None of us has this thing together. Listen, you know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? It says, for by grace, we'll put this up, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's the what? It's not of works. It's, it's the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. This is about God's grace. It's not about me being qualified good enough for God. It's not like I've I ever got this thing down enough to say, okay, now, Lord, because now I know, I know, you know, now I am good enough for you. You accept me. This is not, that's not what the Bible says. What is it? It's a free, what, it is a gift. How can we earn a gift? I cannot earn a gift. At best, there is never such a perception, a faulty image of God is that really it's all about being good. And then goodness, though, is a relative feeling. So, but the Bible says it's not about goodness that qualifies us for the love of Jesus. What qualifies us is our need. And he has met that need in Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. A gift means it cannot be earned. It is to be given and received. At best, our goodness 
the goodness of our life, the good works that would characterize our life, the way in which we treat people, the life that we live for God, the way in which we speak, make our commitments, the way in which we respond when we are wronged, the goodness of life, the good works that should evidence um, something of Christ's reality in us. Really, those things at best can only be a thankful response to a God's overture that is the beginning point of everything. We are good not to get his grace. We get to live in his goodness out of his grace. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a difference. It can at best be a thankful response. That is why. We don't, in other words, I, don't, I can't ever really be good enough to earn God's favor. It's given to us on the front end. And because when you really get it, when we really get it, or at least we get a part of it, we begin to realize, Lord, I am so amazingly loved by you. I would like to honor you with my life as a response to something that is beyond anything I could ever deserve. I can never repay you for what you have given me, so I, I give you back myself as best as I can do with all of my contradictions and flaws and sin. I come to you, Lord, and I say, would you live in my life would you work through me? Would I be able to be part of your great story in this world, touching people that you've allowed me to touch with your reality? Again, the verse I love to quote, let your light so shine before men, before others, that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Acknowledge his reality because of the reality they see in us being lived out, the light of God, the life of God flowing. See, this is something. A lot of times I think people, you know, one of the characteristics of um, unhealthy religion, just stay with me on this point, it, is that I think it, it tends to marginalize and minimize God. In other words, it makes worship something we do once a week, periodically, routinely. It, we do it to keep God happy. We may give him money. We may give it to certain causes. We may do a good deed or two. We may say a prayer. We may serve the poor. We may light a candle or more. We do these things because basically we're trying to satisfy God sometimes and, and to appease him so that he will bless us, forgive us, or at least not be mad at us. And so, in that way, we can, listen, we can almost make God something close to a volcanic, volcanic idol, mountain idol that needs fresh fruit to keep him from exploding. I will tell you this, that God doesn't want our wrote devout fear-based service he wants something far more profound and simple he wants our heart he wants to be in relationship with us that's why he gave us his son and by the way when you think of it this way um, it's something we could never do on our own it reminds us that the lord cares about his love filling our lives and being reciprocated one of the great verses that that summarizes this is, is found in the book of Revelations of all books. And it says this, look at it. Uh, behold, what does Jesus say? I stand at the door and I... The God who waits to be welcomed into our lives, I knock. Let me in. Let me in. What does he want to do? What does the Lord want to do in our life? Behold, I stand there. If anyone hears my voice opens up what? That door? Come in. I, I will come in, and I will come in to your life, and I will, it was an interesting phrase here, and I will dine with him, and he with me? What is that? I will share a meal with you. Look, look at how the, I, I, I had them put a slightly different version just to give it a little bit more of an amplification. 
Look at the NLT puts it, the, the New Living Translation says, it says, now I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, look what it says though. Uh, I will come in and, and notice, what does it say? And we will, we will share a meal together as what? Friends. Wow. God, the king who would be our friend. I would never go there unless he gave the permission to say it. He's so great, but he wants to meet us. What do you do? Look, what, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? What, why do we love? Think about what some of the best moments in life are when we're sitting together with someone we care deeply about and we're having a great conversation. It's rich, it's meaningful, it has value. We're sharing a meal, we're talking, we're being open with one another, we're laughing together, sharing the story of our life together. It's real, it's rich. Why? Because it's intimate and safe and alive and good and there's no bad hangovers after it. It's just the real deal of love. And you know what happens in that place? Something occurs a lot of times. It's called intimacy. You know what intimacy, we always like to say it, into me see. Look into, into me. Intimacy. I share you. I share. What, what, a lot of that occurs where? Jesus, you know what Jesus is saying? That's what I want to do with you. I didn't want to just be your Lord from afar. I, I, I'm more than a savior. I'm willing to be your friend and to share your life with you. Wow, God, that's amazing to me. You care, you care about my ups, my downs, my hurts, my fears, my wounds, my dreams, my hopes, my despair, my discouragement, my even sometimes doubts. Yes, you care about it all, Lord. You are willing to be in relationship with me. You want me to know your love. You want me to learn how to receive your love. And that's the second piece here that a lot of times we need to remember that God wants to be loved, number two, for who he really is. Who he really is, and that's why stay with me that one of the greatest things we can ever do is to say I love you I love you Lord I love you I love God I love you Jesus I love you I sing to you I pray to you I express my heart of love to you I thank you for all that is within me I'll share with you I love you and you know why because we always say this what we speak enhances what is when we tell someone in our life that we love them our love grows for them when we speak out something, sing out something, it enlarges what it is we proclaim, what we acknowledge. There's something about the power of the word. The Bible says in the, in the mouth there is the power of life and death. There's the power of spoken word because not only does it clarify things, it enhances whatever we... So when we say, I love you, I, I love you, with the degree of sincerity, it enhances the love. It grows it. Think, okay, you go back to this... this uh, Remember I mentioned that the, the, each command has a, a two sides to it. There's the positive and the negative. Remember we talked about first command. We talked about how the first command is you shall not. On one side it says you shall have no other gods but me. Nobody else but me. But then you turn it around and what does it say on the positive side? It says, and I give you me all that I am. Have no other gods but you get me. I give you me. What's the second command? Don't make any false image. What's the positive side? Know me for who I am. Know me for who I am. And, that, and, and, and here's the deal. That, that's, that says, find me in my son. Last thing I'll say, last, last piece. <laughs> God doesn't want us to simply have him become a usable deity. Go ahead and put that up. 
He doesn't want us to try to shape him into a usable deity. Listen, he wants to have us let him shape us. You see that? He wants to. So it's like, don't carve out something that makes God usable. Let him shape instead us. Don't shape him. Let him shape us. And what does he want to do? This is the last verse. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed, shaped and defined by the prevailing culture, by our world. But instead, let God's reality transform us, change us. Look, at form us in a new way so that we might what prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that we might find our true self in him. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to form us. So one of the questions I would leave us with is this. What are the areas of our lives right now that God is trying to transform and reform? Is there an area of our life that God really wants to get in there and remake? And will we let him? Will we let him? I mean, I think another way of putting it is, is that what area of our lives are most in need of that transforming touch of God, the conversion of God? Because the Lord wants us to be able to have, to be open. There are some places we say, Lord, I, I need you to come into this place because I, I, got, I got nothing. I, I can't beat it. But please come anew. Come afresh, Lord. Lord, I welcome you into this place. It's a shameful place, but I bring you in anyway because you know why? I want to be like you. I want to love you, not just in word, but I want to love you in deed. I want to be a whole person. Help me. I welcome you in. I welcome you into the shameful place. I welcome you into to the proud place. I welcome you into the defeated place. I welcome you in, Lord. Come. I welcome you into the wound. I welcome you in all the way. You who are wounded, I welcome you into my wound. I welcome you. Come, Lord, my friend, my Savior and my friend. So, Lord, who are and ever will be our friend, May you be our help in time of trouble. May you be the God that changes and forms our life forever. And Lord, may we, as we, as we are here before you, may we, may we be open to the shaping of God in our lives, Lord. And be less inclined to want to make you into something that you're not. Know you for who you are and then allow you to shape our lives because we become like what we worship. So, Lord, teach us the wisdom of setting you at a place in our lives where you are truly what we gaze upon as inspiration, the center. Lord, and out of that will flow an increased likelihood of us moving into your likeness so that it will affect the way in which we conduct our lives, the way in which we love others, the way in which we work out there in the real world, the way in which we live out our faith so that it is not an empty tokenism that speaks only of a ritual, but a real abiding, living relationship that has everything to do with a Savior whose love for us was stronger than death. And I just pray, the Lord, that you would keep working in our lives, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. And let it be, God, let it be.